Hello? Is Bobby there? No, I, I just moved in. Hello, I told you. Mary. There's been a mistake. This friend of yours, he really isn't here. I saw him right there in the window. What did I ever do to you? It's time to dive in the dirty waters of film criticism. Tricycle Radio presents The Movie Wave with Sergio Calvo. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Movie Wave. I am Sergio Calvo, Motion Arts Feature Editor of Tricycle Magazine. I am here at the Edinburgh International Film Festival with Jorsuli. Hi, hi. And Susanna Martin. Hello there. And uh, on this episode, we're going to listen to the interview that Susanna recorded with Matthew Parkhill, director of the psychological thriller The Caller, and the writer of the film uh, Sergio, Sergio Casci? Casci. Casci. But before, before that, Susanna, tell us uh, a little bit about that film, The Caller. Okay. Um, it's a, I would say, psychological thriller slash horror. Um, it's about this girl who's um, um, trying to uh, run away well, um, from the, her abusive um, ex. Um, and she moves into this new apartment where she starts getting really weird phone calls from this woman who claims to be from the past. Um, and um, after a while, um, the caller becomes more and more aggressive and abusive. Um, and it turns out that through her actions in the past, she can affect um, the main character, Mary, in the present. So um, it's it it's it's really interesting film because it it's scary in a very intelligent way. It's not a slasher film at all. It's just it it scares you through the sense of it's it's not a silent house. (laughs) 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 It it scares you through this um, constant dread. And this, in, and this thought that you, how can you fight somebody who's in the past? You can't. The only thing she can well, do. Well, you can with Facebook. You can find everyone nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but she, she, basically, she talks on the phone to Rose, who's in the past. Right. And she has to pick up the phone, even though Rose is getting more and more abusive, mm-hmm. because if she doesn't pick up the phone and she doesn't speak to Rose, then Rose says she can hurt her mother or whatever in the past, and then Rose turns out to grow up without the mother or whatever. So. <laughs> That's really scary. It is really scary. So she has to pick up the phone. She has to deal with her. And if she is um, rude or if she misbehaves, then she's punished. So so Rose does something to her in the past, and then that changes the present. And it's really scary in the in the, the smart way because you you don't know how to fight somebody. You're hopeless. Past. Absolutely. So you think, what the hell can you do? Great concept. It is really. It's a very good idea. Sounds interesting. Uh, how was the interview with Matthew? And uh, Sergio. Yeah, it was brilliant. Um, I um, asked them both if they could, if they would mind being interviewed at the same time, and it turned out to be a very good idea because right. um, they uh, basically, I asked, I would ask a question, and they would just kind of chat to bounce ideas off each other. <laughs> so I would do, I just didn't really have to ask that many questions. Um, it was really nice. They really, really. Nice, friendly, and funny guys. It was it was really awesome. I had a great time. Okay, so let's uh, let's listen to the interview with uh, Matthew Parkhill, director of The Caller and the writer of the film Sergio Cassi. 
you something? Who lived in my apartment? Rose Lazar. I can't believe I'm telling you this. You're talking to a trekking. I can handle it. This is time, like a river. And this is something that happens, an event. What happened to her? Killed herself. What if something interferes with that and makes a new friend to say? You erase it and you draw another line. We get a whole different path. You were supposed to kill yourself, you know that? George found you. I got rid of him, Mary. You killed him. George! Where's George? Excuse me? This is his apartment. No. You remember George? I never met him, Mary. You think I'm crazy? We're here to talk about the court. Yes. Your indeed. film, yes. So tell our readers and our listeners yeah. um, what the film's about. It is a supernatural thriller. Uh, it's the best way I would describe it. Uh, it's about a, uh, a woman who's escaping an abusive relationship who moves into a new apartment and starts getting these weird crank calls from this woman uh, who, who claims she's calling from the past. And at first she thinks, like the main character, Mary, doesn't believe her, thinks it's her ex-husband like setting, you know, setting up these crank calls to harass her. And, uh, but then all this weird shit starts happening in her life that she realises is Mary... Basically, Rose starts messing with her life in the past. So things start happening to her as a, as a child that have knock-on effects uh, in her present-day life. So, uh, yeah, and you know, it's it's hopefully it's it's you know tense and scary, and uh, it seems to it seems to uh, it seems to be getting good reactions. So that's good. I feel it's like it's 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 more of a supernatural thriller than yeah. with horror, some horror elements. Like yeah. a, but but I don't I wouldn't describe it as sort of an out-and-out horror. A smart genre movie is how I describe it. Okay. Um, actually, I yeah, I was going to ask about this because from what I've seen, you are partial to kind of dark comedy or comedy as well. Yeah. Things that you made. Yeah. You know, and and then what, what made you move in such a direction? Uh, I was sent. I got to send the script actually with the two producers I'd worked with before on something else, and they they got to send the script. Uh, and and send it to me and I and actually funny enough I got sent quite quite a lot of genre scripts mm-hmm. uh, I don't know why but I had and this was the first one first time I read it I can't say it's in front of him it was the first time I read it and it was terrible terrible no, it was the first it was the first time I read it and, and I I just I'm going to get too married I was just it was just a very smart it was a very very smart script you know and what I loved about it was it it, it was genre but it was it had it was so much more than genre, and I love the fact that it was it was as much about this woman's psychological journey and psychological disintegration. Yeah. Um, you know, and also I felt from a directing point of view there was a real you know there's some real roles that actors who get their teeth into, which you don't always get in genre. I mean, genre often you get you know, and that's this is fine, but it's not my cup of tea. But you'll get you know the, the female character, the blonde, running around until she gets a knife in her back. You know what I mean? And it's you know screaming, and I and, and I and I and I particularly like the, the sort of those. Those particular moments of the movie, like when she opens the pantry and the, the wall is there, or when she goes next door to George's apartment and George the garden no longer lives there, and she turns to Moya's character and says, "You know George," she says, "I never met him." Like, I remember reading those in my study, sitting reading those moments, and having that like, "Oh my God!" reaction, and sort of that kind of my mind catching up with what was going on, and like, "So that means this, and that means this," and I, you know, and I love that. I love that about the script. I love the fact it didn't explain everything, but it, it, you know, the closest thing it got to an explanation that scene where Moya is describing the, the river of time and the closest thing got to an explanation they then dismiss and like ah it's, that's, it's not that you know so all these elements about the script that for me set it apart from a lot of the genre stuff I was reading it was just a very very smart script and I felt as a director I thought I could 
bring something to it. And, and funnily enough, the first meeting I had with the other producers, I kind of almost taught myself out of a job because I said, look, I love this script, but I'm not a, if you want a straight genre, then I'm not your guy. You know, because the things I love about the script, I know it, I know it has to deliver on the jumps and the scares and all that. And obviously that's, it has to do that because that's what it is. But also what interests me is some of the more, you know, the psychological side of things. So it was, yeah, it was, it was a reaction. It was a reaction to that particular script, and I, and I, that made me go, I'm, I want to do this. And and uh, and I hadn't done drama before. And what I loved about it, and why I would like to do another one actually now, is it really gives you a chance to play with things. And and, and I saw that opportunity in the script, like to play with atmosphere, to play with, you know, you know, really go to town, play with the cinematography, shadow. You know, it's, it's a lot of fun to do. It's not, you know, they're never scary, well, it wasn't scary to make, other than shit that was happening behind the scenes that was scary, but but the actual, you know, I, I love the fact in John, you, it's all about creating atmosphere, about creating tension, all that, and there's, there's so many things you can play with, yes. you know. Um, so that's what kind of really drew me to the project. Okay, so I tried to find the link, but I couldn't. So have you, did you know each other before? No, no. No, no. no. How did Piers get involved? Piers, Piers was the Piers who was there on Monday was the producer that sent it to the two producers I knew. There were four producers involved, and they sent it to me. Yeah, exactly. Well, I knew Piers because Piers from your my first film was a thing called American Cousins, which Piers had been involved with. And so when I wrote the feature length uh, screenplay, I was wondering who I send it to. Um, he was like an obvious person to send it to because you know, we'd gotten really well and he'd done a great job on American Cousins so thought he was a great guy yeah. to work with. Yeah, and that's how, that's how, so I just got the script and then Piers, Piers, this is Sergio, and then Sergio came down to London yeah. one Saturday and we just sat and spent the day talking about the script in my, in my study and, and, uh, and they kind of started from there, didn't it? From there, really. One thing, before I forget, you were saying before about dark humour in yes. matters. One of the things I've never said to you, which, which I don't want to, is that what I, one of the things I really loved about the way you directed the film was the fact that you you kept the humour in yeah. and that you played the, you gave the humour its due. I mean, it's not a comedy, mm -hmm. but there are two, three bits in the film where there are laughs, where, where I just thought, because people in their day-to-day -day life, no matter how tragic, no matter how scary, there are moments of humour, and that's what makes us human, and that's what, you know. And there are two, three moments in the film where you really deliver the laughs, it's a, it's a throwaway line, it's a look or something, and I just think that, I think you were right when you said that about, about the humour, because I think humour and horror should not be totally separate, since you know, people do laugh. But it's funny, it's funny you say that, because it wasn't until Monday night, I remember we, we were the, the films at the Golf Film Festival, which we, neither of us went to, but, but um, it, got a, it got a really nice review from Screen International, which was the first like, trade review. And one thing, you know, I only read the good reviews. The one thing that, um, that was interesting in that review was he talked about the humour. And I remember thinking, I wasn't really, I mean, it sounds really stupid to say this, I wasn't that aware of it. You know, I know there were a couple of funny moments, like particularly the, the insect, stick insect line at the beginning. But when I saw it Monday night, and in that first half hour, it is peppered with moments where the audience was laughing. Mm -hmm. And it really surprised me, actually, because, like I said, I haven't seen it with a live an audience before. And then I was like, oh, okay. So I wasn't that conscious of the humor. But it's instinctive, because you're a writer as well. The fact, because you're a writer as well as a director, I, I think that um, sometimes, no matter how good a director is, sometimes, because they don't have a writer's not, sensibility, yeah. they can miss Things which the writer, which really matter to the screenplay as a yeah, screenplay, yeah, because you're a writer as well as a director. I think you have that sensibility, and I think, and I think that that shows the way that certain lines. See, sometimes you write a, a, a drama for TV or you write a film, and there are certain certain lines 
and to you as a writer they're actually very important lines and another writer I think recognises that straight away while somebody who's purely director might not they might think that what's really important is what's going on in the scene visually and in a sense the, the words are there to fill the spaces I'm exaggerating yeah. but because you have that writer sensibility I think you instinctively gave the words yeah. and the dialogue the importance it required when it was required yeah. and I think that I think that really shows when you, I think when you listen to the audience understanding the screenplay yeah, yeah. I think but it was, it was interesting I mean I mean one thing one thing I would say about humor is I think you know obviously I'm not a comedy director but I think the way to play humor is, is you always the, 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 what they always say the rule is always play it straight you never play it for laughs because when you play it for laughs it, 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 it's no longer funny but that was one thing I remember that our first meeting when, when Serge came down and um we had a really good. Whatever. We had a really good session that day because, and I really enjoyed it because, you know, I think because I also write that it meant that our back and forth was that much more. It was almost like it was a shorthand. It, was, it, wasn't made, it? it, it was that much more constructive. It made it very easy. Yeah. It made it very easy because he knew. I knew what he was talking about. He knew what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. I actually disapprove of writer directors as a policy. Yeah. I totally disapprove. Just, just because I think you know, you're you know, they're taking our work. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> you're right. You're right. But I think occasionally some Bastard. people genuinely do have the facility to write and direct. Yeah. Um, um, Francis Ford Coppola, he's he genuinely can write and direct, and Matthew can genuinely write and Coppola? direct. Yeah, he's this guy. You, you might not have heard. He's got a short film at the festival. Right? Made some art art house movies a while back. But the thing is, you know, some. But I think far more directors think they can write than can write. And so when you meet somebody who genuinely does do both and can do both and and has a quality for it, it's quite rare. I, well, yeah, well, I hate Matthew for a lot of other reasons because he's a good-looking guy and he's nice as well. You just think, you know, no, too much, too much for one person. You know, share. <laughs> very well hung as well, obviously. I heard not. Oh, really? I heard you that. Not seen. Oh, okay. uh, no, but I think um, I was going to say something. Oh yeah, it was interesting searching about that because in a way I found this easier to direct than I found my first movie in the sense that I mean, apart from like being, being more experienced and learning lessons of what not to do and stuff, but also that um, coming to someone else's script. It was easier to be more objective, you know. Like I think when you're doing your own work, it's much harder to step back from it and look at what works, what doesn't work, and what you know. Whereas coming to someone else's script, I, I had that distance, mm -hmm. so it's much easier to, to to think in those terms as opposed to developing your own stuff. And it's really hard. And you really do rely on other people's notes. You really, and, and it's hard to find good producers. And it's good. And it's great to find good creative producers. But but you know, it, it's hard to find people who who can give you those good notes that, that you know, uh, do make the project better and don't kind of derail it or whatever. Um, and I found it, I found it, when I read Sergio's script, that the bits that, there weren't many, but the bits I felt I wanted to concentrate on a bit or, or and that's what, you know, that's what um, we did in that meeting. And, and I just think it, um, it was easier for me. A, the script was very, very good. It was really well written. It was really pacey. It was really well structured. And that's enough now. Work, but, it was a work yeah. of genius. Yeah, it was a work of genius. That's what I'm trying to say. But, but, um, but the fact that I hadn't written it meant that it was easy for me to see and to be objective of it, be objective of it, yes. you know, with it, and, and that was a good experience. Okay, um, I just wanted to go back very quickly to the humour and and the horror elements and so on. Don't you think it's a, it's very um, particular in British cinema that those mix 
like you don't really a lot of time a lot of the time you have films from America for example comedy or horror film they're very pure in that sense yeah. whereas British films very often mix the, the humor yeah, there's yeah. some drama there is everything's like real life yeah. rather than well, the, I think the, one of the, I think one of the great things about um, British if you can use the word British yes. uh, culture in general is that there is usually a uh, disinclination to take anything too seriously. Mm-hmm. I think that's quite a good thing. I mean, you know, maybe that's to do with you know um, a long and, and you know bloody history, and you know <laughs> you, you, you know. But yes. but so so although the caller is a supernatural thriller, yes. and it, it's hopefully very scary and all the rest. Um, I think there was a sort of British sensibility behind it, which was that that even in the midst of such horror and such uh, terror, you know, there can be lighter moments and there can be moments of irony and moments of affection and moments of you know it's the complexity of the human existence I, I don't like films which are two-dimensional um, because because you're losing some of that richness yes so I think I think like the humor it, it, I think for me because it was already there it sort of probably ended up playing itself I think but one of the things that I focused on it's interesting because like I said until Monday I hadn't really thought too much about the humor but one of the things I always loved about the original script and and, and, and it goes, it, it, you know, it fits into what Sergio's saying, which is the other dimension of a supernatural film, the other dimension of the, the story, is the romance between the two of them. You know, and, I, and that was something I remember reading, and, and that's something I very rarely see in genre movies. Like, mm-hmm. a, like I, I genuinely, one of my favourite parts of the movie is, is that sort of romance that develops, and that the chemistry between those actors, which we were just lucky on that. But... Um, but so it's interesting. So you know, you have the, the sort of humor element, you have the sort of romance element, you have the psychological, element, and these are all elements that I think made the script and hopefully make the movie, you know, a smart movie. And, and the other point that has to be made is, is that the love scene was there, but you know, looking back in retrospect with um, Stephen Moyer and Rochelle Lefebvre in the film, if we hadn't had a love scene in it, if uh, Stephen Moyer hadn't taken his shirt off, I think I think we would have been hunted down and killed, and rightly so. <laughs> Because because those two are hot on screen. They have got you know this. The, the, when those two are getting it together, the screen crackles. Yeah. But it's all terribly tasteful. Yeah. It's you know, but the screen crackles, and I think fans of Stephen Moyer and fans of Rochelle Favre are going to be well satisfied. Oh yes, well satisfied. <laughs> Bearing in mind the British cinema, which you obviously love, is there? Would you consider if you had an offer to move to LA ever? Or would you rather always? You, I mean, you, you spent worked, a lot I of time spent two months out there actually uh, earlier in the year, um, working on a writing project. With someone, um, I, my feeling about LA is. I like it, I have to say. I mean, I know it gets a bad press, and I, I, I like it. I mean, I, I love the physical side of it, which you don't often hear about, the desert and the canyons and the, the ocean and Pacific Coast Highway and all this. I mean, I, I love that. My, my, my feeling is, like, you know, I'm happy to go there if work takes me there. Uh, I would always call London my home, and I would always... I would never, like, sever ties with London. I, would, I, I can go there to work quite happily for a month, six months, whatever, and then, and then come back. So I feel... You know, I just want to go where there's good work. You know, I, yes. I want to. I, I have no sort of, you know, I have no sense of like I'm never going to do this. I'm never gonna, I just if something, you know, I you know three years ago I never would have thought I would have made a genre movie, and then I got set in the script, and it and it something clicked inside me that thought maybe think I could bring something to it. You know, so yeah, I'd be open to that. Um, Sergio's like, show me the money. <laughs> I'm I'm thinking that 
My one ambition in life, yes. my main ambition in life, is to go to a Hollywood pool party. Okay. And if somebody invited me out there, I'd bite a hand off. Okay. I'm sure that can be arranged. What, my hand or the party? Oh, the pool party. All right. um, have you been to a Hollywood pool party? Um, I have been to Hollywood pool parties. Are they really brilliant? I can't remember that much about it. Excellent. That's always good. Um, I have a question about the story being real. I mean, as a writer, you write a story, it's in your head, so in a way it's real to you. And then does it, does, see, does seeing it take, being taken apart by a film crew and then shot scene by scene at the water with people who you maybe didn't imagine when you were writing the story, does it make the story a bit less real to you? It can't, I mean, I mean in, in things I've written in the past, certain TV things I've written, I've had that experience. With this film here, um, it was exact, the exact opposite in a sense. And I think that was because I was very lucky. I was very lucky because Matthew directed it, because of the, 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 the cast that we had. Um, and, and it was, in a sense, it was a revelation to me. It, it was the story that I'd always been carrying around in my head, um, suddenly up there, you know, in feature length form. And it, no, it seemed, I, I, I utterly believed it from the moment I saw it. I utterly believed it. Um, I believed the characters. Um, no, it was the exact opposite of what you're seeing. In a sense, it was, it, was, it was that wonderful thing as a writer. I mean, I'd written a screenplay which I was very, very proud of. And then they took it and they made it better. And that's fantastic when that happens. You know, because the thing is, you know, I get the credit. That's a real compliment to you as well. Yeah, yeah, but I don't... I'm not giving... to me as a writer, but that's because I direct my own things. I'm not giving him any of the credit. <laughs> when people say, you know, this part of the script where you so cleverly did X, Y and Z, and I think to myself, that was bloody, you know, Parkle did that. Yeah. But I don't tell them that. Because... <laughs> No, but I it was a great, I have to say, one of my, because I do have, as a writer, you know, writers are, the director's very sensitive too, but the writer side of me is probably more sensitive than the director's side of me. Yes. Directors, directors aren't sensitive, directors are... No, they are actually, believe <laughs> no. Everyone's, you know, on some root level, everyone's insecure, I don't, you know. Um, but I think, um, I think one of the greatest moments for me, or the happiest moments for me, are after we made it, because the shoot itself was a, was a great experience. Yes. But when we did a production screening in December, and Sergio came down with Helen's wife, and I... After the screening, I saw his face and he was walking towards me, and I knew that even before he said anything, he was happy. I was scared. Yeah. And I was like, it was that I was scared. The fact was, seeing the. F I've said this before and I'll say it again. I knew what was going to happen all the way through. I knew, I knew the ending. And yet, throughout the film, I, f I found myself sitting there shitting my pants. Because, and, and, and I've, again, I've said this before, but I first had that experience when we were out in Puerto Rico. When you were shooting the, the, yeah, it was the, the hat scene, was it the hat no, scene? No, it was the finger scene. It was the finger yeah, yeah, scene. Right. And I, the way I remember it was, I was sitting. You know, those little high chairs and had the monitor. Yes. And Matthew was there, and whoever else was there. And Rochelle Favre is digging up a jar which had been buried thirty years before by Rose. And I knew it was going to happen. The non-decomposed finger because it was vacuum packed. And it was That's mummified, vacuum packed and mummified. <laughs> and she's digging it up, and I'm thinking, I know what happens. And then she digs it up. Finger drops out, and she lets rip with this heartfelt scream of terror, and I actually, literally, fell off the seat because it was so. It was just you know, and so and that's when I, when I, when I, what I mean about making your script better than it actually is because you can only do so much on paper, you know, to, to make it three dimensional and real and with people and with you know, and the fact that they delivered it, but much much more than I'd written, is, is the best feeling for a writer. Yeah. That, is, that sounds great. So were you there all the way? No, no, I was just there for a few days, four or five yeah. days. Right. Did you 
did you have anything to do with the with the filming at all? Did you have anything to say about the cast? I I saw I took Matthew through the directory. I don't know. No, no, not at all. I showed me which end of the camera to look through. I have no desire, wish, or abilities in the realm of direction at all. To me, being a director is the most terrifying job. Honestly, I would rather go into a burning building than have to direct a movie, and I and I mean that. You know, a lot, and I think a lot of writers become writers because secretly they want to be directors. And I think a lot of writers think I could do that job better if I only had the whatever time inclination. Whatever. I I know I would be a rotten director. I don't want to be a director. If somebody asked me director, I would beg them not to make me. Honestly, you know. So I'm so happy to let them get on with that side of things. I think it's very interesting the writing director side of things because the writing I always feel one thing that never you know never really gets talked about when you're a director or you never I never you never really hear directors talk about it that much. It's just the reality side of things. Like when you're a writer, you're, you're on your own, you're existing, and it's all about the imagination. It's all about the, you know, the the the, the never land, never never land that's going on. And, and yes, there's a certain reality when you get notes from producers and so on and so forth. But when you direct something, it's all about not all about, but suddenly reality comes crashing in to your. So in your head, you can have it like a certain way, okay? And then the reality is, I have two hours to shoot that. Yes. I'm losing my actor at 10 o'clock. Uh, the location has fallen through so we can't come back and shoot that again tomorrow. Or on this occasion there was a, a passing parade at one point and we had to stop shooting because we couldn't hear the dialogue. So all these sort of things start, you know, and, 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 and the, I think that the, the balance in the act of directing is keeping that sense of vision and tone of where you want the movie to go whilst you're juggling all the, 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 the realities of stuff that's going on. I mean, doesn't that just and, and that's not a, that's, that's something that when I'm writing, I you know you know the writing's kind of pure. Why would you choose to do a job like that? That's why I don't understand. I mean, I do genuinely admire directors because the job just sounds so difficult and heartbreaking and hard. And I just it is hard in the sense of I mean, it's not hard in the sense of you're going down a mine shaft or, or you're you know what I mean. It's, no, hard, it's not hard that, but it is hard. As, there's a great quote from Terry Gilliam once said, and I saw this interview and he said it's, it's hard making a movie, even a bad one. And that's what a lot of people don't realise is what you you put the same amount of love and effort into a movie, and you don't know how it's going to turn out. Actually, you really don't until it turns out. Yes. And um, it is, but I I, I I find directing easier than writing. Cause, really? Yeah. I, I'm ha at my happiest on a film set um, because I'll tell you why why I say that about writing versus directing. I mean, because writing is just it's just you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just you and coming up with. The physical writing of it, I don't mind. I like that. But the coming up with the stuff in yeah, the first yeah. place is, is, I find, really, really, really hard. Whereas when you're directing, it's hard in other ways. But it's not just you. You're bouncing off your actors. You're bouncing off your DP. You're bouncing off your designer. You're you know, so it's kind of mm -hmm. that solitude mm -hmm. uh, aspect of making a film is, is mm -hmm. gone. Whereas when you're a writer, there is just you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you were all ready in Puerto Rico. Yeah. You shot the whole thing in 53 days. 23, yeah. And um, Rochelle, she basically interviewed, and then she, in 24 hours, she was there. Tell the yeah. story because yeah. it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's even more. It's basically, what happened was well, Rochelle was on my radar and someone I was really interested for the role earlier, and for various reasons, it never, it didn't, it didn't go that way. Um, but I was always kind of a fan of hers. Yes. And then when we were in a situation where we knew we had to find a new actress, yes. um, it was a Friday night in Puerto Rico, which is about, was about 10 or 11 o'clock at night, which means it was probably about seven or eight in LA. So all the agencies, everything was shutting down. Yes. Uh, and we were in the situation 
where if we didn't get a replacement within 24 hours the movie was over basically yes. because we were shooting right up to Christmas we didn't have any uh, we couldn't go over after the 23rd of December yeah and um and you were on a budget I'm on a budget and uh, Rochelle my understanding is uh, what happened was she her agent already knew about the script and already liked the script and actually already wanted her for the role previously so when he found out that we were recasting yes. he was on the case yes. uh, he sent her the script she, I, she was in a Montreal hospital visiting her father it was nine o'clock I think there or something like that um, she said yes to the role she got on a plane at sort of like 2am she didn't even go home she didn't even have time to go home she, she arrived in Puerto Rico the next afternoon with like just a day bag that she had in the hospital uh, she went to the gift shop at the, at the, air, at the hotel and bought clothes because she didn't have any clothes and then she ran upstairs, had a shower, came downstairs, got in the car with me to the set. It was pretty much the first time we got to talk about the project. What was she wearing? What was she wearing? Oh, these shorts with uh, Puerto Rico Cosaras. This sort of uh, day glow, in day glow, I remember blue and pink, I think. Good colour. So she didn't even have time yeah. to um, learn her lines? No, no, she was literally learning her lines for that day shooting on the plane from mm -hmm. Montreal. Okay. And, uh, and, and then we started shooting and the scenes in the movie we shot first on that day were where she meets Moira in the classroom and then when they go out in the, uh, there was a corridor scene which we shot, which we, we cut from the movie uh, and then there was uh, the scene where she comes out in the rain and, yes. and, and in the car and those were the I think, three scenes we shot that night and uh, you know from the word go she was just incredible and like I, I was so excited when she started working together with Moira and I saw their kind of chemistry and I saw the you know, I remember very, very clearly there was this corridor scene we were shooting and they started working together and I just was talking with them and then I just shut up and I stepped back, which is something I never would have had the confidence to do in my first movie, but sometimes as a director, the best thing you can do is just shut the fuck up, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and, and I stepped back and I watched them work together and I, I knew then, like, this movie just gone up a gear. Yes. And, it, and, and I think what she brought to it was, it became much more of a psychological thriller mm -hmm. as a result of her, I think, and in, it was always there. Yes. But she she lifted what was there, you know. And there's not, a, you know, whenever I watch that movie, she's in every single scene of that movie, uh, and she, she performed under incredible pressure because we had a long day. She did all her own stunts. We did, you know, there was never a moment where she, because she's in every single scene. There's never there's no downtime for her. So I, whenever I look at her performance and how amazing the performance is, I always stunned that when I know the background of what really happens, I'm even more impressed by what she did. And do you think it's interesting? You, what you're seeing about Moira and her together is the fact that when you, you think you know two good-looking people, two frankly gorgeous people getting together, I mean, it's hot. But what's so much hotter is the fact that they're two intelligent people yeah, very getting intelligent together. Actors, yeah. they're, they're very intelligent, and you can just tell they're smart, and you can tell there's so much going on behind the eyes, and they're they're intelligent people. And I maybe it's as I get older, I realise that yes, looks matter. You know, of course they do. It's cinema. We know that. But intelligence is is one of the most sexy things, um, you know, intoxicating things. I mean, you see those two together and you, and you realise that you just kind of think to yourself, yes, you know. I mean, it's very, it's very smart acting and I'm, I'm a big fan of like, I, you know, I like, I like, act, you know, well, my favourite actors are the kind of actors who have a stillness to them, you know what I mean, who have a minimalist, a minimalist uh, approach to, to the way they do it or, you know, I mean, Guzman has it as well, Moya has it, Michelle has it. You know, it, it's just a lot of it's going on behind the eyes. You know, they, they always talk about it, it's always you know it's behind the eyes, it's behind the eyes, and, um, and uh, that's that's something that's how it's 
you know, those kind of actors I really admired. So to work with those kind of actors was, was, a, lot of, uh, was a lot of fun. Oh, those bastards! Beautiful and smart. Oh, listen. Don't you just yeah. yeah. Oh, in real life, they're 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 not smart at all. No. In real life, they're, they, they're can barely, they can barely string a sentence together. <laughs> and, uh, so, was she married to you, Juice? When you think about your story, it's your story. I, do you know what? I never pictured Mary. Okay. Um, I, I don't. My 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 brain isn't visual in that sense. Okay. A lot of people say, like novelists say, they you know they pictured the even when I'm reading a book. Yes. I never have a very strong visual sense of what the person looks like. Yes. I have a sense of what they are like, but not necessarily what, what they look they like. like. What they feel like, but not not what they look like. And um, but again, from the first time I saw her on screen, I thought, yeah, that's Mary. But it's interesting because well, because I initially in my head I always had Mary's dark hair, you know. Yes. And also. Initially, for me, Mary was much more vulnerable, you know. And one thing about Rochelle, and, and when we were first, when I was first thinking about her, one thing I was a little bit, I was like, she's very, very strong. She's a very strong character, very strong actress. And I, and I was like, hmm, you know, is she didn't quite fit into the sort of uh, the vulnerable image I had in my head of, 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 of Mary. But then what became better because she did it was the vulnerability was played down, it was played on the inside, it was, and, and what it became about is this woman who was trying to keep it together, who was trying to keep a strong mask, you know, uh, and, and then I think her journey became that much more interesting, whereas had perhaps we gone with my initial gut feeling, which was to place someone who was immediately more vulnerable from the word go, I think we would have had a, a less of an interesting journey, which is a lesson to me, which is always, you know, again, as a director, be open to, you know, have a sense of where you want to go, have a sense of what the movie is, the tone. What you what you're making, but but within those parameters, be open to uh, to other ideas. Yes. Yeah. So when you write, do you invent the story, or is it, for example, if I write a story, I kind of follow it in my head, and then I write what I saw. Uh huh. Is that for you? As no, well? no, I'm not. Um, I don't have the facility to do that. It's harder work for me okay. than than that. Um, you know, I, I honestly don't know how I write stories. It's very hard because I, 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 I never sort of analyse the process. And that perhaps that's because, you know, with each different story, it's a different process. Like sometimes I can start off with a character, sometimes I can start off with an incident, sometimes I can start off with a line of dialogue. Um, American Cousins, for example, my first film, it was, uh, I, I had, I had a, a, a line of dialogue in my head. That was the first thing, and the, and the, the film wrote itself around that. So I don't have a particular... I'd love to have a system because then I, you know, I wouldn't worry so much about how I'm going to finish the next one. Okay. Is it true that you are writing a film from Mickey Rourke about um, Gareth Thomas? It is true. It's uh, true. I, 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 well, it, it, it is true. I've, I mean, I'm sort of finished now, so okay. I have written. Uh, how did that happen then? Um, uh, I got a call from my agent saying uh, Mickey Rourke is in town and wants to meet me, which is not a call you get every day. Um, <laughs> And well, you already phoned me, and I said, oh, yeah. I'm "Sorry, I'm busy." <laughs> yeah, no. um, uh, he had read a script I'd written, or his producer, I think, had read a script I'd written, which is in the which is sold, uh, it's in the states. It's a TV script that, that, that they're doing in the states, um, and uh, and I guess they they just like the script, and, and uh, he. He uh, called up and said, we want to meet you on this project, and I yes. went to meet them. <clears throat> and uh, I didn't know really anything about the Gareth Thomas story when yes. I went to meet I mean, obviously did a bit of research once I got the meeting, yes. but I think I got the meeting on the Friday night, and I was meeting them Saturday afternoon, so I didn't have a whole lot of time to, to prepare. And, I, you know, it was a good meeting, and, and then I got a call a few weeks later saying, uh, you know, they want you to do the job. 
and um, I spent about six weeks with Gareth Thomas, sort of researching the role and meeting his family and spending time with him and watching him train all that. Isn't Gareth something like 20 years younger than Mickey Rourke? Uh, something like. Yeah. Okay, let's he is. use that. He is. <laughs> okay. Um, right, alright. I was going to ask. The colour is your second feature. Yeah. <clears throat> how does, for our readers and listeners, how does the director go for a first feature? Because there must be, there is a term, time for a break. Yeah. And it is very hard for yeah. everyone in this business. How did that happen for you? To, go, to get the first feature? Yes. Um, the first feature came out, I wrote it for myself, basically. I mean, I was, I was at the stage where I had done... You know, I was earning a living as a writer. I'd done, as a director, I'd started to, you know, I'd done, I think, about three short films at that time, maybe four. I'd done a bunch of commercials. I'd done, you know, and, 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 I, and I knew that I wanted to do a movie. And I knew also that no one, you know, I hadn't come out of film school. I, you know, no one was going to come up to me and say, you know, here's, here's a script, here's... You know, million two million dollars, or three yes. million, whatever, at that budget level, you, you know. To, and I was like, the only way I'm going to get a shot at directing a movie is to write it myself. Yes. So I wrote a movie that was uh, was for me, basically. And when I sold it and made it conditional on the sale, that I was going to direct it. Yes. So, so which was a punt because it meant I, you know, took a lot less money up front. Yes. Um, uh, but that's how I did it. I, you know, I I, I wrote a script for me. Are you guys planning on working together? I'm trying to, well, I, I actually, I don't know what the hell he's doing here. He's supposed to be writing for me. He says he's writing for his wife right now. I, I I'm writing for my wife, a novelist. Yes. Where's his lawyer's sense of loyalty? <laughs> she provides things that you just... <laughs> just don't, really, frankly. Okay, then. Um, yeah, so I'm turning her... She's got a book called The Devil's Staircase, yes. which is a psychological thriller. Mm -hmm. uh, scary. Another one. Set in London. And uh, I'm turning that into a screenplay at the moment. So. How, by the way, how did your daughter enjoy it on Monday? Loved it. Loved it. Her and her friends. How old is she? She's 14. So, so you know, yeah. there are thereabouts. And uh, all, there were four of them who were that age, three yeah, girls yeah. and one boy. And they all absolutely loved it. And yeah. the boy has downloaded onto Legally his phone. Legally downloaded the movie and sold it already. Yeah, no, 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 no. He's downloaded the ring. Uh, right, onto okay. his phone, okay. so now his mobile phone goes ring, uh, ring, really? and that's him. Yeah. Well, or, or maybe you can just get it off old right? an old-fashioned ring. But he's now downloaded it because honestly, they adored the film, and that's your demographic. Partly, I mean, the thing is, I always say about this film is, I want to scare the kids, but I want to scare their parents as well. Um, but I now know that we scare the kids. Yeah. And it scared me. Yeah. So I reckon we've got a demographic. You know. We're I think it's it's, it's funny. Like that screening, this couple turned to me afterwards, and they must have been in their sixties, I would say. So a couple and their friends, I'd say mid to late sixties, and they were all, they were like, congratulations, it was so scary, it really scared us. And I mean, not not your target audience. So it was, yeah. really, it was nice. It's touch, great when you, you scare know. folk who aren't normally yeah. scared, because yeah. being scared is a delicious feeling. You know, obviously not being scared in real life, but that cinema, cinema scared, is a delicious feeling. And, and I, you know, so often you go and see a horror film and you're just not scared. You know, nine out of ten times you're not scared. But that one out of ten times that you get that lovely sense of dread and the hairs in the back of your neck sticking up, 
I mean, that's gold. I love that. You go to the cinema to feel. That's the, I can't remember who said, you don't go to the cinema to see other people experiencing emotions on screen. You go to the cinema to experience emotions yourself. And therefore, when you get a film that genuinely frightens you in that way, I just think that's, I just think that's wonderful. That's what makes going to the cinema worthwhile. No, definitely. There, there were and there are still filmmakers who influence your emotions rather than just make you watch somebody else's that is definitely true yeah but i think also music has a lot to do with this um and there were this is going to be a long question so pray with me <laughs> there were always relationships between a director and the, and the composer like um for example kishlowski and preisner uh, or Spielberg and uh, Williams, um, they just kind of started working together and it's worked for them for many, yeah. many years. Yeah. Do you work, when you write a script for example, when you prepare for to film, do you write with music in mind, like, or like Tarantino, he hears music and then he invents a scene to go with it? Right. How does that work? I, I think what does. I don't, I, but what I do do, I have a track list for each script that I write, which is just music I'm listening to okay. when I'm, uh, which gives me the sort of feel or the energy. Like for example, I remember writing my first movie, I wrote it to Blink-182 albums, and I don't know why, it just had that kind of intense energy that I wanted the film to have. Um, Alfie's script I wrote to a lot of opera somehow, a lot of opera and Beethoven, and just because it was, I don't know, dark and dramatic. So I, I, I listen to music, uh, not when I'm writing the actual script, but when I'm trying to come up with a story yes. to put me in a certain place. But I don't, I don't, certainly for me at a writing stage, I don't think about score, no. Okay, so um, do you keep the CDs in mind and then tell your um, no. composer no. what it no. was? No. No. Uh, no, by the time the movie's finished, I mean, what I tend to do is like on this, you'll what you normally do is you normally put on what's, like, what's called a temp score. Yes. So you're sort of stealing scores from other places yes. to say to, for two reasons one, one is to say to the, really the people who are going to see the early cuts of the movie, like the producers and, 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 and so on, this is what it's going to feel like, the yes. music. Uh, and then depending on the composer, some composers like to have a reference yes. uh, and, uh, you know, on this one I, I, there was a temp score and I talked to the composers about score that was there but I didn't want to be prescriptive I didn't want to say well it has to be a violin here it has to be it was more kind of like I want to hit this beat I want this sort of feel I need an emotional swell here and you know so it was more that kind of progress and as I say different composers like different things some really like there to be a temp score some kind of guidance to get inside the director's head and, and yeah. some for it to start with a sort of blank page you know so it's just personally interesting yeah. to me as well yeah. so do you get given composers do you choose them um, it's something that it, it evolves during the edit. So sometimes it might come from your editor yes. who composes. Like I remember the love scene on this. Yes. Our Puerto Rican editor Gabriel put it together with the initial cut on the love scene was put together with the Radiohead track called uh, uh, Videotape, which is one of my one of my favourite tracks. And actually, that stayed all the way through. And then when Uncle got involved, I gave him the love scene with that track and said. You know, this is the kind of feel, and they went and composed a song, which yes. I, and I love that song, the love scene, you know, which Uncle composed. Uncle did. Um, so sometimes it will come from the editor during editing, or sometimes it will come from me, yes. uh, and I'll just sit there and I'll try different tracks, or, yes. or you know, it depends. And, on, and also, what you do, which we didn't do much on this, we didn't really do at all in this movie, we didn't have the budget, was for, for licensed tracks. Yes. You know, so sometimes you'll, like I did this on my first movie, we had a lot of licensed tracks, and. Uh, 
and so you're, the editor actually cuts to that music. Yes. But because you know you can get that track and you can afford it and so on and so forth. Um, but this was, the one thing I would tell the school of this that I found really fascinating was, you know, working with Uncle was, you know, it's not clear where score ends and sound design begins. Yes. And sometimes what you think is sound design is actually score. Yes. And what you think is score is actually sound design. And, and I think particularly when you're dealing with genre movies and fear and tension, sound is like so important yeah. it's so important because you know it that's what creeps you out or that sort of makes you tense or that watching it's it's, it's the, the feel and we had so many there's so many weird and wonderful sounds on this like the the dial when you when you dial the tone yes. uh we, we recorded that and then we reversed it mm. or another sound we've got here is a bee in a jar trapped in a jar yes. and you quite a few times in the movie you can hear this you don't really, you don't want, you wouldn't know what it is unless I tell you it's a bee trapped in a jar. Yes. Or another sound which I love is the composer got his daughter to sing a nursery rhyme and then he played it backwards. Right. And that's a really so all these sounds going on that you're not really aware of. But um, so and I loved that. I loved that. And I was always very clear about that that this will be a, a very sound design style score. Yes. The only place it isn't is in the sort of uh, more emotional moments, like when she visits the graveyard. Or the sex scene, or that which are uh, which are kind of slightly more traditional, emotional, rousing yes. school. Okay. Do you at all ever write music? Yeah, music? yeah. I, I often um, in a film I have a song, a pop song maybe in in mind, and I actually write it into the screenplay sometimes, a specific song. Yes. And um, every single time the director changes it for one of their own. I always swear at them in my head and then eventually I come to love the new song and I think, oh actually theirs was a better idea. I remember with, um, again with an earlier film I did, I had the character singing uh, an Italian song from the 60s yes. and, I, and I wanted them to be singing the famous Italian song Volare yes. and it had to be Volare, it had to be Volare. Yes. And the director changed it and he made it another Italian song called Non Olita, which is entirely different. And I, and I said, well, what? And, and he was right. In the end, he was right. And it's funny because when people watch that film or talk to me about it, they love the fact that that's the song they're singing. Yes. And Volare would have just been so obvious yes. and so unsatisfying. And so, again, it's one of those situations that make me realize that I was not destined to ever to be a director because, you know. <laughs> You're easy to sway, though. I may, yeah, maybe well, I, I am easy I to sway. Think, I don't think there's, there's, there's a right and wrong. You know, like I, I had the same process on this song, on this film. I wanted, I fell in love with the Radiohead tracks, the love scene, and I couldn't imagine another song. I just yeah. couldn't imagine. And I was heartbroken when we couldn't afford to get it. You well, know. Sing it for me. I can't sing. Hum it for me. What heck, which, I'm trying to remember. Well, it's, very, it's very, um, it's very, uh, it's very, I'm good, I think, yeah. It was very, um, what's the word? It's all very, it's more atmospheric than melodic. I can't get you to sing uh, that. No. You can go, 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 you know, go, go on YouTube and look up Videotape by Radiohead. Video or, I don't know if you get it on iTunes. I think you can get Radiohead on iTunes, can you? But um, it's a beautiful, beautiful song. And I was, I was wedded to that song. Yes. And then I was ultimately, you know, told we can't afford it. And, uh, and now I can't, when I hear that sex scene to the song Uncle did, I can't imagine anything else. It's a beautiful song. It's a beautiful song. So, you know, it happens. It's not... It's not like this is the right way of doing it and that's the wrong way of doing it. It just brings out different things, different yes. ways to bring out different things. And I would have been very happy with the Radiohead track, but ultimately, you know, now I can't I can't separate that song from the sex scene because I I, I, I'm, I love that 
you know. I mean, I love it. That, the lines that like, it starts as you know, can't the exact lyrics, but will you will you see will you look beneath and it's, if you actually listen to the lyrics, they are so non love song lyrics. You know what I mean? Or love scene lyrics, and that's what I love about it. Really. Any advice for young writers or young filmmakers who are just setting out on the journey? I've got a good piece of advice. Okay. Very often people think it's impossible to, to break into film, and I certainly, it didn't occur to me when I was a kid that it was a job that you could do, and I think it's the same with Matthew. You know, the idea of becoming a filmmaker, or a writer, or a director, yes. it's like, you know, playing centre forward for Manchester United or having a number one hit single. You yes. know, it's just, it, it doesn't even arise. You know, you, you, you go into your careers advisor and say, I want to be a screenwriter, I want to be a director. And, 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 and I, can, well, I can imagine saying, you, yes, such animals exist, but you ain't one of them kind of thing. And I'm not blaming them because, you know, it does seem... But the thing is this, the thing to remember is this. Out of every hundred people who want to be a screenwriter, say, 50 will never write a screenplay. The remaining 50 will write one screenplay, and when that's not made, most of them will drop out. So actually, you're not competing against 99 other people. If you are dedicated and you want to do it, and you're willing to um, stand up again and brush yourself down after you fail at the first hurdle and try again, and maybe even try a third and a fourth time, if you're one of those people who, who wants to do it enough to keep going, you're not competing against 99 other people. You're competing against just a handful of other people. And if on top of that, you've got some, some ability, you, you do stand a great chance of doing it. So I would say to people, if you really want to do it, go for it because it's too easy to get put off yes. you know but if you've got a day job which is paying the rent yes. you know don't give up too soon <laughs> because I did I give I give up my day job yes. and, and all my writing work that I thought I was gonna get dried up yes. and it was scary you know so I'm not saying that you know give you know give up the day job and jump straight into it but do keep going there's 24 hours in the day my mother always says this is 24 hours eight hours sleep Eight hours work, eight hours play, and you can get an awful lot done. I don't know where the. Yeah, I'm not going to see this movie. She's been to see, it, yeah. When did she see it? She saw, remember I got a screener. How did you get a screener? I didn't get a screener. Yeah, because you're not as important as I am. <laughs> <laughs> but she should see it in the movie theatre, not in the on the on the DVD. She's an Italian mama. She wasn't willing to what wait. She <laughs> loved it. Like it. She loved it. I'm not sure how much she actually watched. Yeah, I, yeah. I believe my mum won't watch it. She said to me, "I'm sorry." I showed the trailer. She like, I, I can't, I can't watch it. Um, I think, I mean, first I'd echo part of what Sergio said at the, the beginning part, because I, I used to be a teacher and I didn't grow up around people who worked in film or, and I remember the day, I mean, I'll talk about directing side for a second, I remember the, when I decided I wanted to be a director, the biggest hurdle for me was saying it out loud to people, especially my friends, because there's that reaction, well, what the fuck do you know about film directing? Yes. To which the answer was not a lot back then, and, and, you know, because I didn't go to film school, but, but I knew that if I didn't try, I would become an old man and I'd always resent the fact that I didn't try. I'd be like, you know what, even if I tried and failed, like if my career ended tomorrow, I'd, you know, I'd be okay with that because I feel like I've, I've, I did it, I, I'm happy with what I, you know, the films I made and, and, you know, whereas if I had never tried. So I think like, my first thing is don't think it's only for those in the know or only those who are connected or only those who go to film school, those, you know. And now it's even, it's even easier than it was when I was making my first shorts because you just you get, you know, you get a camera, you go out there and do it. Um, on the writing side, I would say, in, in some respects, it's easier than than being a director in the sense that you can just go up to your room and do it. Yes. Whereas a director, you're only directing if you're directing, yeah. and that relies on other people. Whereas writing relies just on you. Mm -hmm. uh, um, but on both 
confronts, I would say, sort of a, a kind of a, a dose of reality, which is, you know, it is what is hard about the industry it is based on rejection, and you are going to get a lot of no's, and you have to deal with that, that those no's, and you know, you'll get angry, you'll get pissed off, you'll get up, but then you get up the next day and you just you, you carry on doing it. And I have a fridge magnet on my desk, which a friend sent me many years ago. It's a quote from Churchill, and just says, "Never, never, never give up." And it's that it is it's what Sergio was saying. It's like you know, I've had days where, both on the writing and directing front, I've, I've, you know, uh, something goes wrong or blah blah blah. You get a bad review, all these things, and they and they hurt. You know what I mean? You're not like an idiot. They they hurt. And and or a project falls apart, or a film you thought was going to happen. But, you know, all these things happen. But but you know, you just you just keep going and you learn and be open to learning yes. you know there was a, there was a I remember the interview I once read, I think it was Oliver Stone as a writer he was saying you know I remember this and he said something like you know talked about rejection and, and he said you're going to get a lot of no's and be grateful for those no's and, and just carry on and see if you can and he said write quickly as well see if you can write two or three things a year which I, I, I don't but see if you can write two or three things a year because you know what you could write the best script in the world and it may not get made for a million reasons yes. But, 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 but be aware of, of that, that you will get a lot of no's. Yes. And everyone, I don't care if they're Martin Scorsese, Woody Allen, whoever, has gone through a phase where they've got a lot of no's. Um, you know? I've, I've worked for a very short time for a publishing house and I have to send out no letters. Yeah. Yeah. That was yeah. heartbreaking. Because yeah. yeah. I, I know the receiving end is just horrible and yeah. I know it's just heartbreaking. So for people like that, I know they have to, I think maybe get either hard skinned or, or just not take it personally. You just, have to, you just have to assume that everyone who says no is an idiot. I mean, of course they're not. <laughs> but, but I think, I think the hard skin yourself. thing is difficult because as, if, if you're on some level a creative person, or on some level an artistic person you normally with that goes the baggage of a certain sensitivity or certain you know and so that hard skin thing is is hard and I think what you have to tell yourself is that you know um, you know I, I love the big Lebowski for example there are people who hate that movie and that and you know it's just gonna happen with what you write with what you make some people are gonna you know I like can some people aren't no matter whether you make a great movie or you don't make a great movie um, but I think on terms of breaking in, you know, either it's a long-term game. You know, one of the things I'm proudest of is that I've been earning a living at this since like nine to five. And I used to be a teacher and I did the same thing as Sergio. And I, I didn't give up, I probably didn't give up. I gave up teaching just about the right time, but I, I would teach on the day and I would write in the evenings, I would write weekends for years. I mean, I had no social life. You know. But that's also for other reasons. Yeah, also for other reasons. <laughs> uh, that's to do with my halitosis. And all that but I mean, um, but uh, but it's, it's it's just that it is that tenacity. It is that ability just to keep going, not not to like stick your head in the ground, and not listen to what people say about your work. You know, if you're getting constructive notes or people trying to help you. Um, but yeah, I think firstly believe you can do it, and secondly just never give up. Never give up. You've got careers. You used to have jobs. Now you have careers. I, I feel, yeah. I, I have to say one thing. I'm deeply, deeply happy about, and I'm grateful for every day. So I don't have to put on a tie and go into an office. I've never put on a tie for work. I've never gone into an office, and that's one of the things I'm most proud of. And so I feel like 
I don't feel like I have a job because I have no real distinction between, you know, I watch movies every night if I can. Yes. My daughter lets me, you know. And, and, and so there's no real distinction between, people say to me, like, what do you do when you're not working? And for me, my whole life is about work. And I don't mean that in a sad way. It's just, I love what I do. I just, I feel very lucky to do what I do. And as long as I can earn a living doing it, I'm going to carry on doing it. Yes. Yeah. I've never really thought about it in terms of, of having a job or having a career. Um, I, because when I set off, I set, when I started, I was a journalist, yes. and I thought that would be my career. And then I realised that I probably didn't have the correct temperament to be a journalist. And so then I went into, you know, it was always to do with writing, and um, so I suppose I've always seen myself, and I've always wanted to be a writer. Um, I did. I wore a tie for a long time. Interestingly though, the only time I'd, I'd worn a tie at school, and you, oh, always wore the, tie at school. you always wear the same tie. In school, and so when Six I started, when I started as a journalist, I bought a tie. It was my first non-school tie, and I didn't realise that you're supposed to wear a different tie on different days. I just thought you wore the same tie every day. And after maybe four months, five months of wearing the same tie every day, and nobody said anything to me. I was that young. I realised that somebody in the office smelled, and I was trying to figure out who it was. And wherever I went, they seemed to be there. And then one day, I took my tie off. And, and you know you can you can write the rest of the thing yourself. I put it in the sink to wash it. The water turned black, and that's when I realised it was so. So here's it for young people reading this or listening to this. If you wear apparently you're supposed to wear a different tie. I didn't. No one told me. I it's not that great against wearing ties. It's just that whole mindset of of. Uh, what was the Chris Rock thing again? He like he said people with careers. Do you have a job? Would you have a career? Yeah, yeah. people with careers should shut up next to people with jobs. But why should they shut up? Because they're lucky, basically. Because, they're, because they love it. There yeah, is not yeah. enough time in the day yeah. to, to do what you want to do. Yeah. Whereas people yeah. with jobs, they just have to go yeah. work. I mean, look, that's the hard. That's the, that's the hardcore thing. I mean, like I always realize, like you know, however much this shoot, for example, was tough on many many levels. But I'm also aware, like there wasn't a day went by I didn't go to set and know how lucky I was to be there because I'm yes. not you know, working in the supermarket, I'm doing something I hate, you know, I'm lucky, you know, and it could, like I say, I'm also very aware it could all end tomorrow, you know, a friend of mine, director, a friend of mine says, as a director, you're always one movie away from never working again, you know, so you have to be aware of that. You do, you're hoping to continue doing it then? Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I you know, I want to keep directing as long, as long as I'm physically able, and then yes. when I'm no longer physically able, I'll keep writing until I'm no longer mentally able, then, then that'll be that, I guess. And I want to go to a Hollywood pool party. <laughs> <laughs> there is always that. And that's the end of the interview with Matthew Parkhill, director of The Color and the writer of the film uh, Sergio Cassi. Uh, this is it for episode 9 of the movie Wave. Uh, find more interviews and uh, film reviews at Tricycle Magazine and its glorious website, tricycle.co.uk, where you can also get a copy of the magazine delivered to you to your door, whether you live in Beijing, Ipswich, Santander, Cairo, Bamako, or anywhere in the world. Uh, Tricycle Magazine is not responsible for the content of uh, this program, and all opinions and views expressed on the show are solely of the individuals. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be surfing the wave soon. podcast is a production of Calvinet Entertainment for Tricycle Magazine. Find out more at tricycle.co.uk. That's T-R-I-S-I-C-K-L-E.co.uk. Thank you.